I ask you to open your Bibles this morning to Luke 23 one more time. Page 884 in the blue Bible in front of you. This is the third and the last part of this chapter. Jesus been tried, convicted. He's now crucified. We put him on the cross last week. So we pick up this week in verse 44 with Jesus already on the cross. You follow along as I begin reading in verse 44. Luke tells us it was now about the sixth hour. That's about noon. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, about 3 p.m. When the sun's light faded. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. And he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the council, a good and a righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Blessed are those who hear it and obey it. We've been looking at the story of Jesus' crucifixion. His death, obviously necessary before we can get to the resurrection. We've been looking at this from the perspective of light versus darkness, good versus evil. I started working at New Life the end of March, which means that beginning today, I will start my 27th year at New Life. Personally, I think the church made a mistake in calling somebody to be their pastor who was only 10 years old at the time, but be that as it may. It took a few of them a minute to get that one, but you got there. For 27 years, though, we've been pushing back the darkness, bringing the light of the gospel of Christ to people. And for the next 27 years, we're going to continue to do that. Amen? Pushing back the darkness with the light of the gospel of Christ. But as we read through this story today, with Jesus on the cross, there are some specific details that we want to notice 
And then we're going to draw some lessons from what we see in this passage this morning. Let me give you, I think there's eight things just that I saw quickly going through this text. Number one, <coughs> Luke tells us that the sun went dark at about noon to 3 p.m. Clearly, this is a supernatural occurrence. It's not the time that you would expect it to be dark outside at noon. And this was not the time of year when you could even have an eclipse. The Passover occurs during a full moon. So we know this couldn't be a natural thing. There's no eclipse anyway that lasts for three hours. Second, Luke makes a point to tell us that the curtain in the temple was torn. This was not done in anger by God. This is the point of the story for Jesus to die on the cross to open a way for us to get to God. So this curtain was not torn in frustration or in anger. This was the point. And Luke makes an issue of this to tell us, excuse me, it's Matthew that tells us this, that the curtain was torn from top to bottom. Clearly it's as if the finger of God just went like that and tore that curtain open so that we could have access into the presence of God. This curtain was made of heavy woven material. Have you ever tried to tear cloth? It's not easy. This is something that we are to understand was not a natural thing. It's not something that could have been done by a human. Third, we're told about Jesus' cry from the cross. If you take all the Gospels together, Jesus spoke seven different times while he was on the cross. Luke tells us several of them. This is the cry of Jesus just before he died. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus is affirming here that he is laying down his life into your hands. God, I am giving you my spirit, he said. Jesus' life was not taken from him. He laid it down. Jesus even said that in John chapter 10. No one takes my life from me. Number four, Luke tells us about the centurion. This is a Roman, the guard who is in charge of all of this. When he saw Jesus' death, he affirmed, surely this is an innocent man. Now, if you've been keeping count, this is the fourth person to affirm that Jesus is innocent. Luke wants to make no doubt about it, no question. Jesus is suffering an unjust death. Having Jesus' disciples or Jesus himself affirm his innocence, that doesn't mean a whole lot. I go to the jail once a month to do a Bible study, and I made the mistake... (laughs) 
of talking about the sins that we commit and that what gets us into jail. And one of the guys snapped back. He says, not all of us are guilty. Right? I've heard rumors that there, nobody in jail is guilty. That's what I've heard. Right? That a person themselves, that person himself claims to be innocent, that doesn't mean a whole lot. For Jesus to say he's innocent or for Jesus' disciples to say that, that well, of course you're going to say that. Even guilty people claim to be innocent. But Luke records four people who are not followers of Jesus. Remember? We got Herod, we got Pilate, we got the thief on the cross, and now we have the Roman centurion all affirming the same thing. Jesus didn't do anything. He wasn't guilty. Number five, Luke tells us about the witnesses who were there. He tells us about some people who saw what happened and then went home, and then he talked about the women who saw what happened and stayed and watched even as Jesus was buried. These are witnesses to what took place. And this is important. You say, well, why do we need that? Because they witnessed the fact that Jesus died. What does that do? That keeps us from coming back later, as some do, and say, well, he didn't really die. He wasn't resurrected. You see, he didn't really die. Well, that's silly. There were people, there were witnesses who saw it and affirmed it. What? You're going to say that you know more today than the people who were there and saw it? Well, that's just silly. These witnesses are important. Number six. Luke tells us about Joseph, not the father of Jesus. This guy Joseph who comes and asks for the body of Jesus. Matthew 27 tells us that he was a believer. Luke tells us here that he was a good and upright man. But John 19 tells us that Joseph was a believer, but he was a believer in secret. For fear of the Jews, even though he believed in Jesus, he didn't want people to know it. Luke tells us that he did not consent, even though he was on the Jewish Sanhedrin, the body that voted for Jesus to be executed, even though he was on that body, he didn't agree with what they did. Deuteronomy 21 tells us that a body was, that what was dead was not to be left hanging on a tree. It's not to be out overnight. It's supposed to come down. And so Joseph goes to Pilate and says, I want to get that body and give it a proper burial before sundown. What we see here is that Joseph has a desire to obey God's law. That's important. We're going to see that in a minute. Number seven, we're told about the burial of Jesus. That he's put into a tomb that wasn't his, it was borrowed and no one had ever been put in there before. You're like, well, who cares? Because in that day, they, they had these little crypts. And they would put multiple bodies in there. Well, why does it matter that this one had not ever had a body in there before Jesus? It's kind of important. 
Because if you had other bodies had gone in there before Jesus, how do you know Jesus' body was the one that came out? If there's only one body in there and one body comes out, do the math, folks. Right? There's no, well, how do you know it was Jesus? Because I was the only one in there. All of these details are important because they take away any of the the suspicion, well, maybe it didn't happen the way that we've been told. This also fulfills prophecy that says that the Messiah will be buried in a tomb with the rich. Is a rich man's tomb. Number eight, finally. These women who are uh, through this whole experience are with Jesus. Some people went home after Jesus died. The women stayed there. They watched Jesus' body being taken off the cross. They saw him wrapped up in the shroud. They saw him placed in the tomb. They went every step of the way. Again, witnesses, it's important. Why? Because who goes to the tomb Sunday morning? Women. The same women who saw which tomb he went in. So that precludes anyone saying, well, maybe they went to the wrong tomb. You know, Jesus didn't come out of that tomb. They just went to the wrong one. Well, no. They were there. They saw which tomb he was placed in. So obviously they know where to go back just a few days later. And when they see the stone open out of the way, they know what's going on. We're also told that they go and they prepare the spices to bring back to anoint Jesus' body. But Luke makes a point of saying they rested on the Sabbath. You notice that even though Jesus has been crucified, even though their hope has been dashed, they're still being obedient to God. That would have been a perfect time for them to say, well, forget this stuff. It didn't work. You know what? We trusted that God was going to do something in Jesus and he was just killed. Forget it. I'm not doing this stuff anymore. Even though their hope has been shattered with Jesus' death on the cross, they still saw the importance of being obedient to God. There are witnesses. Jesus has really died. Jesus has been buried. Now, what do we learn from this story? Those are just the details of what happened. What are some of the lessons that we learn from this story that we don't want to miss while we're here? I'm I'm a history lover. I like watching history stuff on the History Channel. I like reading history just interesting. But I don't want to read the gospel narratives as just history and say, oh, that's interesting. No, there are lessons that we are to learn from these stories that we don't want to miss while we're here. So let's look at some of those details that we just talked about and see what are the lessons that we can learn. Number one, the darkness. We're told that the sun went dark for about three hours. Now, darkness, as you read through the Bible, is a sign of God's judgment. We're told that in the last days, when God judges the world, one of the features will be darkness. 
That's a sign of God's judgment. But we need to be careful here. God was not expressing displeasure at what was taking place. What was taking place was the plan of God, remember? This was what God wanted to happen for the sacrifice for our sins to be forgiven. So it isn't like God has this plan for salvation and then as it's taking place, God turns out the lights to show, well, I don't like this. No, God's turning out the sun was his way of showing the judgment of sin on the cross. Something significant is taking place here. But as I look at this darkness, I began to spiritualize it a little bit. Can you relate to going through times of darkness in your life? As Jesus is hanging on the cross, we hear Jesus talking to the Father. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We hear Jesus talking to the Father. What we don't hear is the Father talking to the Son. Now, all you have to do is go back a little bit to when Jesus was baptized. Remember what happened when Jesus was baptized? There was a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What a wonderful affirmation of who Jesus is at His baptism. But at His crucifixion, nothing. Come on, God. You couldn't have given Him just one attaboy? Just one word. This is my boy. Good for you. That it was dark. Oh man, that had been so cool. Make it dark everywhere and then just have this one beam, this one shaft of light right on Jesus. The spotlight right on it. That had been cool. And everybody's like, wow. He said he's the son of God. Sure looks like it, doesn't it? At this moment, as Jesus is being tried, nothing from God. Silence. Darkness. You ever been there? Going through a mess. A trial in your life. Nothing from God. Silence. Come on, God, how hard would that be? Darkness. Jesus, as He scans the horizon, nothing. All by Himself. Which leads to the third thing that Jesus said on the cross. My God! Why have You forsaken Me? What did I do wrong here? Ever feel that way? I want you to understand, as you see Jesus on the cross, as you see the darkness 
over the land. As you see, there's no voice from heaven. It's silence. It doesn't look good for Jesus, does it? If I'm just walking by that day, I'm thinking, man, this guy has been abandoned by God. What'd he do wrong? What we see here doesn't look good. Jesus looks like, at that moment, a failure. His kingdom has come to nothing. He's dying. But Jesus said something to Pilate when Pilate was questioning him about whether Jesus was a king. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And if you look at Jesus with the wrong eye, from the wrong perspective, you might miss the point here. Jesus' kingdom isn't of this world. If you judge Him by this world's standards, He's a failure. If you judge Jesus by what you can see, he's just, He lost everything. His life was a waste. Cut down in the prime of His life. No wife, no kids, nothing. Jesus is a failure. But, from God's perspective, Jesus was the most successful person to ever live. He died in complete obedience to God. Fulfilling the plan and purpose of God for His life Perfectly, so that Jesus could also say on the cross, it is finished. I did what I came to do. From the world's perspective, Jesus was a failure. From God's perspective, he was a success. And yet, how many of us are guilty of judging our own lives, judging the lives of others, simply by the darkness that we see? Oh, that person's going nowhere. That person's doing nothing. That person's a failure. How many times do we see a person going through a time of darkness in their life and we're secretly thinking, I wonder what they did wrong. I wonder why God's doing this to them. That's what we would have thought about Jesus when we saw Him on the cross. Why is this happening? We're guilty of judging ourselves and judging others by the period of darkness that we're going through. But what about what God is doing? Maybe God is using that time of darkness for something good. From our perspective, we miss the point. Maybe you're going through a time of darkness in your life right now. You might think that God has abandoned you. That's how it looked that God had abandoned the Son. He hadn't. Jesus was being judged for the sins of the world. But God hadn't forgotten about Him. God had not abandoned Him. Don't forget that when you're going through times of darkness in your life. Number two, we're told here about the torn curtain. This is important, not just because of what happened, 
but for what it symbolized. That curtain prevented anyone from being able to go into the most holy place. There were different parts of the temple, different parts of the tabernacle. But the innermost part, the holiest of holies, was surrounded by this curtain that only the high priest could go into once a year. And what we're told is that curtain was was torn. And what it was, remember from the, the book of Hebrews, that study that we had, that curtain has now been torn away, and through Jesus we can have direct access to God ourselves. God has opened the way for us to have access to Him. Our sins have been washed away, and we can have access to God now directly. Here's the question. Just because the curtain has been torn, just because the way has been opened, doesn't mean that you've walked through it. That you've gone in. Jesus opened the door for us to have a way. Have you gone in? What was the point of Jesus dying to open the door if you're going to stay on the outside. What good is that going to do? When you stand before God, you're going to say, "Ah, God, I just so much appreciate Jesus opening the door for me to have access to you. And God's going to say, why didn't you walk through the door? Why didn't you go in? It's one thing to see what Jesus has done. It's another thing to take advantage of it. To stand on the outside is to miss what Jesus has done for us. Number three. I love the part about Joseph here. Joseph, we're told in in the other Gospels, was accompanied by Nicodemus. The guy that went to Jesus at night in John chapter 3. Both men are said to be believers in Jesus, but both men are said to be secret believers in Jesus. They didn't want anybody to know. Their position was important to them. So they didn't want to jeopardize their positions by outwardly affirming their faith in Jesus. And yet, when Jesus dies, Joseph goes to Pilate and says, I want that body. Why? Dude, he's dead. What good is it now? We're told here that that he didn't, Joseph didn't consent to their decision. My question is, did he vote no when they asked? When they asked for the show of hands? All in favor, aye. All opposed, say no. No. Did he say no? We don't know. We're told he didn't consent to it. But he seemed to be a secret follower of Christ, we're told. Why are you coming now, buddy? It's kind of late to help Jesus at this point. He's dead. Why risk associating yourself to Jesus now? If you won't associate with Jesus when he's alive... Why take the risk now that he's dead? You see, what we're told in the story is that the disciples are still hiding. And they will for several days until after the 
resurrection. Why? Because the threat of being associated with Jesus is still real. Hey, they killed him. Maybe they'll kill us too. So the disciples were not taking any chances. They were in hiding. But Joseph comes out of the woodwork and I want that body. He didn't care if people knew he was associated with Jesus at that point. I don't want to take away from what Joseph did here at all. Because he did a good thing. He got that body off the cross. He put it in the tomb. That was important. The other disciples, the disciples, the followers of Jesus weren't there. These guys were. I don't want to give him credit for that. But what's the lesson? The lesson is don't wait until somebody's dead to say what you think about them. Come on, folks. I do funerals. I hear what you say at funerals. And sometimes I listen to what person says at funerals. Really? That's not what I heard you say about Uncle Joe last week. When he was alive, you were saying a lot of different stuff about him. And now he's dead. Oh, now we're going to say all this other stuff. How many of us are waiting until people are dead to show how we really feel about them? Now, I'm not telling you that had Joseph, had Nicodemus done anything differently before Jesus was, was killed, that it would have made any, it wouldn't. Jesus was being steamrolled over and they were going to get him no matter what. This was the plan of God. But, Joseph and Nicodemus are kind of back in the wings until Jesus is dead. How many of us are guilty of living our lives as secret Christians? Oh, we'll, we'll be open here in church, but how about out there? How about in front of the world? What Joseph does here is, is good. That's an important thing. Don't wait until a better time to come out. To show what you really feel about Jesus. What you really feel about other people. Show it now. Live honestly right now. Sometimes it's not convenient. Sometimes it's not easy. Do the right thing and stand up when it matters. Not until it's too, when it's too late. Number four, and I want to stick on this one for just a minute. This prayer of Jesus while He's on the cross. Father, into Your hands... I commit my spirit. Now I want you to put yourself with Jesus in Jesus' place at that point. We've already talked about this. Jesus is at the lowest point in his life. And there's what I call here no external verification that he's on the right track. Utter silence from God. Darkness. He's all alone, it seems, at this point. The Father doesn't come riding in and rescue Jesus at the last minute before they crucify Him. God doesn't even come in and rescue Him moments before He dies. God lets Him die. What's the lesson? 
What's the lesson that we learn from Jesus in Him praying to the Father at this moment? The lesson is simply this. Keep trusting God even when it looks like God's turned His back on you. You see, Jesus didn't give up hope even when everything looked hopeless. We have the Word of God in Scripture. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Sure looks like Jesus has been forsaken here. That's what He said. Why have you forsaken me? And yet from the same person that says, I feel forsaken. He prays this wonderful prayer and says, God, into your hand I'm going to place my spirit. Here you go. Boom. Absolute, complete trust in the Father when it looks like God can't be trusted. This is huge. Would you do that? How many of us have gotten angry at God when it looks like God's just turned the lights out? We're going through a time of darkness and everywhere I look, I don't see God anywhere. How many of us get angry? God, where are you? Why haven't you helped me? Somebody in your life that you love is sick and you pray and you pray and you pray and you believe and you believe and you believe and they die anyway. God, where were you? You're going through a crisis in your marriage and you pray and you pray and you pray and you get divorced anyway. God, thanks a lot. Or what we might say is, God, thanks for nothing. And yet Jesus doesn't pray that. He prays, here you go, God, I trust you anyway. Now let's put an even finer point on that. Jesus dies with absolute trust and commitment to God when it looked like God had just packed up and left him. But Jesus is not just showing us how to die. Jesus is showing us how to live. We're to trust God when everything is going the way we want. Oh, by the way, we're supposed to trust God even when nothing is going the way we want. When it looks like there's no point. It's trust in the midst of struggling. Because that's what is testing our faith. It's easy to trust God at those times in your life when God seems so close, the hair on your arm begins to stand up. You can just, you just feel like you put your hand out, you can touch God, He's that close. And then other times, God seems so far away, you're not even sure He's real. It's okay for us to admit that. Jesus did on the cross. He said, man, I feel like God's gone. 
It's okay to admit that. But the question is, what are you going to do at that moment when you feel like God is gone? Jesus said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to trust Him anyway. Because I believe that that God who has been there for me my whole life, I believe He's still here. This is just His plan for me right now. It's not easy. It's not painless. But God hasn't left me. And I'm not going to turn my back on Him just because it looks like God has turned His back on me. You ever see those bumper stickers? I tried God, but it didn't work. What? You hear many people say, oh, I used to be in the church, but it didn't work for me. God let them down in some way, so they gave up on God. If anybody had a right to give up on God, it'd be Jesus. Because it didn't work out the way we would think it should work out. Yet Jesus said, I'm not going anywhere. I've lived my life believing in God. I'm going to die believing in God. In Hebrews, we talked about the discipline of God is not easy. Well, Jesus was not being disciplined. He'd not sinned. But how many of us are going through the trials and the discipline of God and we're beginning to question God's love for us? We begin to question God's existence. Well, if there was a God, He wouldn't allow this to happen to me. Really? The Father allowed His Son to be brutally murdered and die on a cross. We don't doubt God's existence because of that, do we? No! Well, why would you doubt the existence of God? Because you're going through something even less. It's a trial, no doubt. It's a struggle, no doubt. But the question is, are you going to throw away your anchor at the very time you need an anchor? Are you going to throw away your trust at a very the, the time you need your trust? And you look at Jesus and you're like, man, I couldn't do that. I could not continue to believe in God if God just let me die. And the point is, yes, you can. That's what faith does. Not when it's easy, not when it's painless, but when it's hard, it's painful. I am not giving up my faith now. I don't know any other way to live than to trust God. That's what we learn from Jesus on the cross. And I look at that and I'm like, oh my goodness. You might not know this about me, but... Some people do. I like to whine and cry at times. Oh man, this is so bad. Right? I, I am a good whiner. Right? Now compare what we whine about. Don't act like you don't do it too. Alright? Compare the stuff we whine about to what Jesus went through. Oh my gosh, we're ready to give up our faith over the littlest things. 
Jesus is not willing to give up his faith even though he's being killed and God's just standing by and watching. What kind of faith do you have today? I don't want a faith that only works when things are going well. Folks, I need a faith that's going to kick in and hang on when it looks like nothing's going right. When it looks like everything is going to hell in a handbasket. That's when I need my faith. And when I see Jesus on the cross, I say, now that's the kind of faith I need. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.